We're continuing our teaching series entitled God With Us. We're asking the question really from the Gospels as, as God takes on human flesh and lives amongst us, how does He relate to us in our humanity? And today we're going to be looking at the subject of Jesus with women. So why don't we praise and we invite the Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you fill this place with your presence? And Lord, as we open up the Scriptures, we ask that you would open up our hearts to receive a vision of the Kingdom of God that's, that invites us into the more that you have for us. So Holy Spirit, come and move amongst us. Amen. Now, before I launch in three introductory remarks, number one, this is going to feel a little bit more like a lecture than a preach, hence the stool, going for that kind of vibe. So this isn't going to be rammed with sort of like stories and banter and silly jokes, sort of trivial stories and silly jokes on a subject like oppression. That's a very high risk strategy. So this is going to feel a bit more like a lecture than a preach. Second thing is that if you were to summarise the way Jesus relates with women in a word, I think perhaps one of the best words would be unbelievable. Unbelievable. The vision that we get from the Gospels is so pure, so beautiful that throughout church history, it's been hard for people to actually believe it. In other words, rumours and myths have emerged that maybe it was actually too good to be true. Maybe Jesus did relate to people in a kind of sexual manner. Maybe his relationship with Mary Magdalene had a sexual dimension to it. Maybe they actually got married and had kids. If you've um, watched or read the book and the Dan Brown book, The Da Vinci Code, you'll know that that's a popularisation of an ancient myth. In other words, this is too good to be true. And I guess I want to say that it is so beautiful. It is so pure. But the best thing about it is it's actually true. It's a beautiful vision and example for us to follow. Here's the third statement then. We tend to look back historically and basically sort of push down what's happened before and we elevate ourselves. So in the Western imagination, essentially we have this idea of evolving ethics, that our ethics just get better and better. So Jesus was here in the first century operating in a patriarchal context, but throughout history we've seen sort of breaking of some of the shackles that have held us back. And, and here we are 2,000 years later and things are just getting better and better and better. And the reality is the model and example of Jesus is the climactic moment in all of human history. 2,000 years later, we're still trying to live up to and live into the example of Jesus. So before we look at his teachings and his example, let's just look at the context in which he operated. So this is the ancient context and the context of the first century that had a very low view of women. This is going to be painful as we explore um, some of this cultural context, but we can't hide human history. We have to acknowledge it. So in the first century, we've got source texts from people like Josephus and Philo and many others that give us an indication of this very low low view of women. So the rabbis taught a threefold daily prayer. Now you've got to understand then that praying this prayer every single day for a Jewish boy, a Jewish man, that's going to be deeply, deeply formative. And this is the prayer. Praise be to God that he's not created me a Gentile. Praise be to God that he's not created me a woman. Praise be to God that he's not created me a slave. 
So saying that every single day. So in terms of the hierarchy of beings, you've kind of got animals, the animal kingdom, and then one rung up, you've basically got slaves and Gentiles and women. And then the the list continues. You see this very, very low view of women in the first century. In Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but a thing. She had no legal right. She couldn't testify in court. She was entirely the possession, notice the language, the possession of her husband, or if she was unmarried, her father, and he could do whatever he liked with her. Now, if you think that's a bad context, then Greek culture was even worse. A Greek philosopher once said this, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. Women in Greek culture lived completely secluded lives. They took no part in public life. They never appeared on the streets alone. They never even appeared at a meal or social occasions. They even had their own apartments where no one was allowed to enter apart from the husband. And if things were bad in Jewish culture and Greek culture, then Roman culture was even worse. Now, again, we tend to look back with a phrase that sociologists use, chronological snobbery, which basically means we look back at history and we're like, how backward, how evil, how behind, right? And yet in the last few years, we've been shaken by the oppression of women in our day, in our age. The Me Too campaign, the tragic killing of Sarah Everard and Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry and the list goes on. Like this isn't just an ancient problem, right? This is a current problem and we have to talk about it in the church. So let me read you some of the stats that highlight maybe go beyond just highlighting, they expose the culture that surrounds us, the culture that we're a part of. And I'm fully aware that these aren't just stats, these are stories and they are people. And I'm fully aware that what I'm about to talk about um, is a living reality for many in this room. So we need to tread carefully and Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon us, give us grace for this. So 20% of women have experienced some type of sexual assault since the age of 16. That's equivalent to 3.4 million female victims. 3.1% of women, that's over 500,000, age 16 to 59 have experienced a sexual assault in the last year. Approximately 85,000 women aged 16 to 59 experienced rape, attempted rape or assault by penetration, penetration in England and Wales alone every single year. Only around 15% of those who experience sexual violence report it to the police. In other words, shame is a major factor. 31% of young women aged 18 to 24 report having experienced sexual abuse in childhood. Just let the figures hit you. 31%. A third of people believe women who flirt are partially responsible for being raped. That's misogyny right there. Blaming women for the experience they have of violence at the hands of men. Conviction rates for rape are far lower than other crimes, with only 5.7% of reported rape cases ending in a conviction for the perpetrator. Like this is the culture that surrounds us. And if you want a graph to highlight what's happening with sexual violence and offences recorded in London um, since 2011, you can see it's a constant rising graph. And you can see that as lockdown kicks in, that becomes exponential growth. 
Lord, have mercy. Listen to these words, Angela Davis. She says, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. And as human beings, let alone followers of Jesus, we need to basically declare we will not accept this. We want to be part of change. We want to live in and live out a better story, the story of the kingdom of God. So if I was to summarise how Jesus relates to women, this is a poor summary, but it's the best that I could come up with. Three dimensions to it. He restores dignity, he releases destiny, and he redefines family. So number one, he restores dignity. Let's look at this text. If you've got a Bible, John chapter eight, this is the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Reading from verse two, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, I want you to notice what's going on. And and the way to understand this is actually to read the preceding chapter, chapter seven, which tees this story up. Jesus has been in the temple courts. It's a Jewish festival, the festival of tabernacles, the festival of booths. And he stands up and he declares, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He's quoting passages from Isaiah and Ezekiel 47. He's basically making the claim to be the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, the one that will usher in the kingdom of God. Now the Pharisees are irate. The crowd begin to talk. Maybe he's a prophet, like maybe he is actually the Messiah. And then the Pharisees jump in saying, he's deceived you also. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob knows nothing of the law. There is a curse on them. This is the accusation of the Pharisees. They know nothing of the Jewish law. There is a curse on them. So what do they do that night to set up a trap? They basically find a woman caught in the act of adultery. Potentially they imprison her overnight and then they drag her to Jesus in the morning um, for this encounter that we're about to read. Now, if they really cared about the law, then they would know, and they did know, by the way, Leviticus 20 verse 10 that says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death, right? So if they really cared about the law, they would have dragged the man and the woman before Jesus. But they don't care about the law. The Pharisees violate the law in order to enforce it. So the crime of this woman isn't just that she's caught in the act of adultery. The crime is that she's actually a woman. They've let the guy go free. This is oppression, what we're talking about. And Jesus is about to step in. Now, what is the trap that they've set before Jesus? They're using this woman as a pawn in their game. So what is the trap set before Jesus? This is the trap. Jesus either says yes You're right about the Torah, the Jewish law, the commands given by God to Moses and the people of Israel. You should stone her. 
But he knows because this is a Jewish festival, the Roman authorities would descend upon the temple, the outer courts. They wanted to make sure that there wasn't any rioting or sort of uprising in the temple. So in the temple courts this day, the Roman authorities, the soldiers would have been watching this encounter, right? So if Jesus says, yes, you're to stone this woman, he's going to be in huge trouble with the Romans, particularly because the Romans have um, basically outlawed the Jewish people executing their own. So listen to this text. This is John 18, verse 31. This is the crucifixion narrative. As Pontius Pilate says, take Jesus yourselves, judge him by your own law. But they respond, but we have no right to execute anyone. They objected. In other words, you've outlawed us from doing that. So we can't stone anyone. We can't execute anyone. So if Jesus basically steps in and says, yes, according to the Torah, you're to stone her, so stone her, then he's going to face the full fury of the Roman authorities, right? But that's option one. Option two is he says, don't stone her. And then he's going to face the full fury of the Jewish authorities for not upholding the law. So he's in this trap, right? This is a political argument and no one cares about the woman. This is happening all the time in our cultural moment. Political conversations that don't care one bit about the person. Jesus is going to step in. He's going to transcend the political arguments and demonstrate incredible compassion for this woman. This is how he does it. He bent down. He started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. This is Jesus basically saying, you're right about the teachings of the Torah. She's committed the crime and you know the penalty. She should be stoned. But... The one who's going to act as judge right now needs to be sinless. So whoever's without sin, you throw the first stone. They know their scriptures. They know the teachings that we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way. In other words, none of us is without sin. So suddenly there's this moment people don't know how to respond. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked a woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. How do you articulate this moment? The answer is this is a return to Eden moment, right? Eve, the archetypal woman, you get a vision of human flourishing in Eden before the fall. She's naked and unashamed in a wide open space. But what about this woman? She is naked. She's drowning in shame, surrounded by men holding large rocks, ready to pummel her to death. She would have been cowering, waiting for the first rock to strike her. And then she hears, and that's not the beginning to EastEnders. That is stones falling to the ground and the crowd dispersing. And when every single individual has left, Jesus says, where are they? Do they condemn you? No. Well, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. How does she leave this encounter? The answer is probably still naked, but unashamed 
in a wide open space. This is a return to Eden type moment. Listen to these words from Kenneth Bailey. He says, the Pharisees planned to humiliate Jesus, but were themselves put to shame before a crowd. A few minutes earlier, the terrified woman had expected brutal violence and a painful death. Suddenly the Pharisees are angry at Jesus rather than at her. At great cost, he shifted their hostility from her to himself and he doesn't even know her name. She knows that Jesus' opponents will be back with the bigger stick and that Jesus is in the process of getting hurt because of what he's doing for her. She is the recipient of a costly demonstration of unexpected love that saves her life. This is a foreshadowing of the cross. This is what leads to the cross. We celebrate the cross that Jesus died for her, our sins, right? But Jesus died for her sins. He knew the penalty had to be death. He knew that he was stepping into her shoes, that he was going to embrace death on her behalf so that she could go free. Like this is unbelievable. How much does Jesus care about this woman's dignity? And the answer is enough to die for her. How, does, how much does Jesus care about the dignity of women? The answer is enough to embrace death. So Jesus restores dignity. Secondly, Jesus releases destiny. Now listen to to these, all from the gospel narratives. Number one, the news of the incarnation, first given to a woman, to Mary. Secondly, Jesus allowed women to travel with him, fund his ministry and be his disciples. Listen to this from Luke 8. After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And then the women are named Mary and Joanna and Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Basically, Luke, of the four gospel writers, he's the doctor. He's the most forensic in his approach, in his recording of details. He wants everyone to know that the ministry of Jesus was funded by women that the ministry of Jesus was dependent on women. More than that, these women were amongst his disciples, part of his kingdom movement. That is extraordinary in the context of the first century. Jesus was traveling with these women. They were funding his ministry. Thirdly then, Jesus raised up women to become leaders in his movement. So listen to this, Luke 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, if you know this story, the story continues. Martha and Mary have an argument. Martha says to Mary, you're not meant to be sat at the feet of this rabbi. Like that's for the men. They're being trained up as students to become rabbis themselves. You're meant to be with me preparing the meal, showing hospitality. You got this wrong, Mary. And this is really, really embarrassing. And Jesus steps in and says, no, Martha. You've misunderstood. Mary has chosen what is better. Like I'm embracing her as a disciple. More than that, I'm raising her up to become a rabbi, a leader in the movement. Now listen to the same author. This is Luke in his second letter or second book, the book of Acts. He's talking about the apostle Paul, who was a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. This is, this is Luke basically saying, do you know how Paul became a rabbi? He sat at the feet of this rabbi. 
Exactly the same language, by the way, educated at the feet of. This is Luke basically saying, do you want to know something about Mary? She was educated at the feet of the greatest rabbi that's ever lived. She was a disciple more than that. She was being raised up to be a key leader in this movement. Extraordinary. More than that then, Jesus first revealed his identity as Messiah to a Samaritan woman. The first moment in the, the Gospels where Jesus reveals this secret that he's actually the Messiah. It wasn't to Peter, it wasn't to James or to John, it was to a Samaritan woman he didn't even know the name of. So let's read some of this story. The context is, it's in the middle of the day, they're at a well and Jesus breaks all the boundaries to engage in a conversation with this woman. She's a woman for number one. Men and women wouldn't speak to one another in daylight. Number two, she's a Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. And number three, she's an outcast. The reason she's at the well on her own is because the other women have rejected her. They would go to collect water the beginning or the end of the day when it was cool. They would go together so that they could be protected. But because this woman's an outcast, she has to go on her own in the heat of the day. And Jesus just cuts through all those boundaries to begin this conversation. And notice this, Jesus dignifies the woman by taking the position of the vulnerable person. He basically dignifies her by giving her the position of strength saying, I need your help. I can't draw water right now. I'm really thirsty. Could you show mercy to me and offer me help? That that is extraordinary that a man in the first century, let alone a Jewish man, let alone a rabbi would humble themselves and say to this woman, could you help me? And they enter into this conversation about water. And and Jesus says, well, I can offer you this kind of water. If you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty again. Like an incredible conversation emerges. Jesus begins to prophesy over her about her life. She panics because she's being exposed and she makes this kind of theological conversation kick in about the Messiah. So let's pick it up, verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, and this is it. The first moment he reveals his greatest secret to this outcast woman. He says, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Do you know this is the first Christian evangelist in church history, a Samaritan woman. This is the first person who knows the full identity of Jesus and begins to proclaim it to others. How extraordinary. More than that then, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women and therefore the first preachers of the resurrection were women. This isn't an age where women couldn't even testify in court. So listen to these words from one commentator. The exclusion of women from courts was normative. Courts were made by men for men. Babylonian, Egyptian, Canaanite women did not go to court, nor did Greek women, even in later times. Roman women could 
could give testimony in court, but could not be a witness to a will. So in an age where women couldn't even testify in court, Jesus goes out of his way to ensure that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. And they become the first proclaimers of the gospel. Like when you add all of this up, I mean, this is mind-blowing. In the context of the first century, this is mind-blowing. The news of the incarnation given to a woman, the first miracle John 2 performed um, for a woman. He allowed women to travel with him, fund his ministry, be his disciples. He raised them them up as leaders in his movement. He first revealed his identity to a Samaritan woman. She becomes the first evangelist in church history. The first witnesses of the resurrection were women. The first preachers of the resurrection were women. And Luke wants us to know all of this. Like, How do you explain this? I honestly think this is Jesus reversing the effects of the fall. You know, in Genesis 3, it says, because of humanity's sin, that there is a curse upon them. Part of that curse will be men ruling over women. And as Jesus establishes his kingdom, basically all of this begins to unravel and Jesus begins to elevate women in the most extraordinary way. It's unbelievable really hard for people to believe that it could be true, but it was true. And people experienced liberation and freedom. Dorothy says, concludes this, perhaps it was no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this man. There never has been such another, a prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coerced them or patronised them. Who, know, who never made sick jokes about them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out this sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There was no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny or inferior about women's nature. Unbelievable. That leads to part three then. Jesus redefines family. Listen to this conversation, Matthew chapter 12. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, notice men and women, disciples, not just the 12. Pointing to his disciples, he said, here and my mother, and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus begins to reframe what being family really looks like. And he does this in an age that idolized marriage. That if you weren't married as a woman, you'd be vulnerable. Fast forward the clock 2,000 years, we live in a church context that idolizes marriage. And it's had devastating effects on the church. Because we've idolised marriage, we've actually dethroned Jesus. We proclaim that he's Lord, but deep down many of us actually believe that if you want to experience companionship, comfort and completion, you need to find the right partner. So we we really want Jesus because he's going to be a help. But what we really long for is the right partner to get married and and settle down, right? We idolise marriage. We've dethroned Jesus. And when you dethrone Jesus, you empty the church of power. But it's worse than that. 
When you idolize marriage, we begin to treat one another in a dehumanizing way. We basically look at people and think, could they be the one that's going to help me live a fulfilled life? We objectify people. And we all know this is a reality that when you walk into a room, you're asking this question, could they be the one? Could they be the right partner? Maybe not. And we treat them like products. Like, so we'll say, oh, he, he's great. He's a little bit short for me. I've had that one spoken over me. He, a little bit. There's no pain there though. A little bit short for me. You know, a little bit like, that's a nice phone, not got a great battery life. I like that computer. It's not got a fast processing speed. Like she's great, but I, I'm not sure like she's really my intellectual equal. Or, or he's great, but I'm not sure he's funny enough for me. She's great. And we begin to talk like one another as if we're objects. And what does Jesus model to us before we ever relate to one another as a potential partner? We relate to one another as actual brothers and sisters, right? As actual brothers and sisters. So if you're on a tube ride and a woman is being harassed, should you step in? Yes, because that is your sister who's probably terrified in that moment. If you're walking home as a guy and you see a girl and you wonder if she's being followed, should you step in? Yes, because she's your sister. And if it was your sister, you wouldn't think twice. You'd step right in. Jesus begins to reframe family life in the most beautiful and dignifying way for women. And he invites us to follow his example. So when we enter into the room, can we not be just scanning the room looking for potential partners? Can we actually recognise we're actual brothers and sisters with areas of brokenness and areas of human gifting and what we all really long for is to be loved. Let me close with this then. Four practical things of how we can honour women. Number one is, is to defend Right, And I know this might be controversial in an age like this, but because of the physiological differences between men and women, there are moments where women are more vulnerable. Right, And it is right and proper that we defend people, whoever they are, when they're in moments of vulnerability. So number one, we defend. Jesus was constantly defending those that were vulnerable in the systems of his day. Number two, we exalt women. Because many women have been undefended, they've experienced deep trauma and shame that leaves them incredibly vulnerable, right? And the model of Jesus, he made a beeline for the most vulnerable women of his day. He made a beeline for the woman at the well. He made a beeline for the lady caught in the act of adultery. He made a beeline for the prostitute at Simon's house. He made a beeline for the lady that had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and had become an outcast. He made a beeline for Mary Magdalene and the list goes on for the Sarah Phoenician woman and the list goes on. He made a beeline. And what did he do to these women? He restored their dignity and released them into leadership within his kingdom movement. That is extraordinary. What an example to follow. So we exalt we raise up. Paul says that we're one body, but there's parts of the body in certain moments of human history and church history that have received less honour, right? And, and what's the remedy in situations like that? We give them special honour. Like 
in the church, we've created huge amounts of pain for many, many women who haven't been championed and raised up in the church. They've been crushed. And if you've experienced that, I am so sorry. As a priest in the church, I say, I am so sorry that people have experienced pain in the church rather than people championing them and releasing them into leadership. So this is a moment to exalt, to raise up and to champion. I've just used that language. To champion those around us. At KXC, like this is a particular passion for us. If you were to look at our leadership structures, 50% of the senior pastors of this church are women. That's B, by the way. There's only two of us that are senior pastors, B and I. So that you can do the math, that's B. 50% of our associate team are women. 60% of our leadership team are women. 58% of our staff team are women. That's almost 46 individuals when you count the apprentices who are serving in the most incredible way. 58% of that are women. 55% of our clergy and ordinands who have been trained up to be priests in the church are women. This is a real passion for us. We want to be a church that champions women and releases them into their destiny. And finally, we're called to love, to defend, to exalt, to champion and to love. Like, what does love look like? It looks like laying down rights and our needs that might lead to our fulfillment. We lay that down to prefer others. Like a community that's fully alive in the kingdom of God is a community when people walk into the room, they're not driven by their own needs. They're looking to love one another. And that's the kind of community we want to be. Let me close with these words, Christine Kane. God's image is only fully reflected in both man and woman. When we denigrate a woman, we are in fact diminishing part of the image of God. When we exclude women, we exclude part of God. When we put women down, we tarnish the image of God. No one dignifies, affirms and celebrates women like the God of the Bible. Therefore, it should be the church that leads the way and sets the example of placing deep value upon womanhood.